You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Just a quick note. This series deals with sexual assault, so please keep that in mind when you decide when and where to listen. Also, to protect their identities, we've changed the names and voices of some of the people that we've interviewed. We're also doing something unusual. We're releasing a short video about Megan Buisson, the speed skater from episodes 6 and 7, that includes actual footage from her clinical trial. Please take care. It's not easy to watch. You can find it on New York Magazine's website. Last year, I got an email from somebody I had known years ago, somebody I really look up to and respect. And they were asking me about doing psychedelic therapy. Like, what do you think? You know, they had no idea I was working on this project. And they were like, Lily, you always told me that if I was interested in psychedelics, I should contact you. And I'm really interested in working with this person and I'll give you their name. And like, it turned out it was someone that had trained with Francoise Naharon. Yeah, Francoise Borzat, the singing French shamaness. And I was like, oh, oh, uh, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I was just this feeling like an infection has spread everywhere and could touch anybody that I care about. Now at this moment where the floodgates have opened, people will ask, what do you think of psychedelics? Or, you know, do you think this might be something that I could check out? And it's a question that a lot of our sources get. We're curious, what do you say to friends or, or other people who might be considering psychedelic therapy? Like, do, you, like, do, you, do they ever come to you and say, like, I'm oh, thinking about... Yeah, when people come to me now being like, oh, Susan knows all about that or whatever, I kind of go, I, I, I'm, I might not be the person you want to talk to. <laughs> yes, there's potential here. And... Uh... This is Cover Story. I'm Lily K. Ross. All right, so it's been a long road, and for some people, the story keeps going. Um, I'm filling out the declaration. The last time that we spoke with Susan... To give to the Board of Behavioral Sciences about my therapist, A.L. Gorin. She was printing out a form that she was going to submit to the California board that oversees psychotherapists. Okay, I'm just grabbing a pen. She had to write out this summary for the investigator to explain exactly what Aol had done to her while he was her therapist. Okay, I wrote on January 5th, 2019, after giving me mushrooms, Gorin proceeded to lie next to me in bed. He then put my head into his lap and wrapped his legs around me. Oops, maybe I have to rewrite this again. <laughs> um... Ayal Gorin was Susan's mentor and therapist. She met him when he was her TA, and he brought her into this underground training to be a psychedelic guide. And the training was run by Francoise Borzat. Gorin also engaged in sexualized touching, hugging me repeatedly and stroking my sides and stomach. He also kissed my cheek. Um, okay, now I'm going to say... 
throughout his time as my therapist, Gorin repeatedly told me I needed to give into erotic transference. He said that all his clients tried to have sex with him, and I needed to give into it. Okay. All right. I guess that's that for that. Susan was looking through her records to find the dates of her therapy sessions and reading all these text exchanges with they all. Dave and I checked in with her while she was right in the middle of writing down her allegations. Yeah, just what's been happening. She told us the investigator needed evidence that Aol was her therapist. I was like, I have a plane ticket I bought for him. I have text messages. I have. And she was like, don't send me everything. I can't use all that stuff. She's like, I need something that states that he's your therapist. Aol has since told New York Magazine that Susan's allegations are false and that he never provided her with therapy. But Susan found out another of Ayal's former clients was also in the process of reporting him, and Susan was ready. I made a list of like, okay, what do I have? One piece of evidence that Susan had was a check. And you know that little place that says memo where you're supposed to fill out what the check was for? Well, she'd put landscaping. And he had texted her to be like, why did you do this? And I was just like, oh, it's just a joke, man. You just didn't get it. But <laughs> What did he say, by the way, when you said it's just a joke, wait, man? Wait, let me pull up the actual text. Okay, here we go. He said, next time write therapy, not landscaping. Smiley face. Although it might seem like landscaping sometimes. I don't know how to describe that emoji, that one. <laughs> Tongue dangling from side yeah, of Yeah, different mouth. size, eyes, tongue out. I said, no, no, it's just a dumb thing I do when I write people checks, put a memo for something that it is not for. All good. And he said, okay, with like a side smile emoji. We don't have that thing in Israel, so I wasn't sure if anyone cares about what you write there. I'm so grateful that I wrote that stupid joke and grateful that he was so confused by it. <laughs> For sure. I've been trying to find someone who gives a shit that this is going on. And, oh, it's just so wonderful to have someone who gets it. I feel that on this end, too. And it's it's just kind of wild to be along for the ride. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I'm glad you all are here. Ditto. All right. Well, I guess we will. We can sign off for now. Okay. So I'm going to scan this off. Let me get the case number. In the matter of Ayal Goren, I attach the documents and I'm going to press send. And it got sent. So that conversation with Susan was almost a year ago. Yeah, I had filed the reports in 2021. We recently caught up with her again, and she had just gotten another update from the investigator. And so she just uh, submitted my case and my evidence against him. So do you know what happens next? Um, well, she said that it's going to be a long road. It takes a lot of time. It can take a couple of years for it to really pan out. Ayal still has his license, and he's able to practice therapy. The same is true for his mentor, Aharon Grossbard. We've heard a number of allegations against them and people in their circle over the last six months. So it's pretty worrying to know that they're still out there, and who really knows what they're getting up to. But as the licensing board gets more complaints against them, they have more evidence to get digging— And if there's something we've learned in this project, it's that there is a lot going on under the surface. It may take a long time for this to all pan out, but Susan's pretty optimistic. Like, even just the fact that, like, the podcast came out and at least things are being looked at, that feels like a huge win to me. What do you feel like you've gotten out of filing complaints and reports and that sort of thing? I mean... Just this feeling of, like, I'm not alone. I know it's still, I, we're still doing it. It's still happening. But I'm like, great. This is, I already feel fantastic about it. 
we are not alone. It's like there's a whole group of us. <laughs> like if it were just me alone this whole time, would I have done any of this stuff? Susan is a therapist now, and she also has people asking her questions about psychedelic therapy. And now, like, regular people who never used psychedelics before are being like, oh, my God, this looks so cool. Even my dad, like, emailed me something on psychedelics he saw in something. Or the worst is when people come up to me and they're like, oh, I read that book by Michael Pollan. And I'm like, huh, like... (laughs) (laughs) You know, they'll email me the New York Times article or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I saw it. Like, and try to be like, look, oh, it's getting mainstreamed. And I'm like, yeah, great. Like, I don't feel good about it. I've done some really deep work with psychedelics, and I'll remember those experiences for my whole life. And it's helped me with grief. It's helped me with all kinds of things. It's helped me to grow. It's helped me to break down rigid, maladaptive structures in my brain and then reform them in healthy ways. But it also, I attribute, like, I did those things. The psychedelics didn't do those things. And it's hard because it's like, if you have an ethical therapist, yeah, it can be great. But it's a case-by-case basis, right? You can't make every person ethical. Do you think that there's a way to do it safely? I think there could be, potentially. Um, You know, I think there's something to be said for responsible adults using these substances in intentional ways and then going in and talking to their therapist about that experience, but not putting the power in the therapist's hands. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think there might be a way to do it, but... It takes the power away from the therapist and makes it less sexy for the therapist and doesn't make it into this shamanic thing, but makes it into a a more like a sleep study where you're just observing someone doing their thing. People act like the psychedelic world is open and beautiful and like all about love or whatever. And that's not true. Like, all these narcissists use psychedelics and it just makes them into bigger narcissists. I don't know what the right answer is, but what I'm seeing out there right now, I don't want to be a part of. Hi. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. How are you? Good. Nice to see you. Yeah, likewise. It's funny, we've been talking a long time, but we've never really met. Yeah. Well, I wanted to like chat through a couple questions that I had and we're we're trying to bring this beast in for a landing. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is someone I haven't told you much about. Her name is Ashley and we've been in touch for a while. Ashley is someone else whose guide was trained by Francoise and Aharon, and she's like a lot of people we've talked to where she had a history of abuse as a kid and she was having a really hard time when she sought out psychedelics to try to feel better. She's one of the people who helped me really see the scope and the magnitude of the problems in this underground world. Yeah, I kind of boil it down to there's nothing wrong with psychedelics. There's things wrong with people and yeah, you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable position, more so than normal. So I think it's it's just important that people realize that part of it because that's something I didn't really fully grasp. Yeah. I to be honest with you, like I consider myself fairly knowledgeable about some of these subjects, but it's really in the last 2 years for me of of doing this project that it's really hit home just how vulnerable people are in these states. Definitely, yeah. I think that anything that is a risk, there are ways to do it that are safer than others. You know, you can go in a wingsuit down the edge of a mountain and you can do it at the ultimate risk or a bit safer, but that's something that you have to assess for yourself, like what you're willing to put on the line. But I think that... um, 
if you're relying on someone else within those states, uh, it just, you know, <laughs> might be good to know who they are. Ashley was living on the East Coast, and her regular talk therapist had recommended this psychedelic guide from Francoise and Aharon's circle. And this guide swooped in with his magical shamanic combination of mushrooms and MDMA and 5-MeO-DMT and these professions of support and compliments and then love and then touch. And at first the touch seemed reassuring, but then it seemed alarming Like a lot of people we've talked to, Ashley said no and resisted in a lot of different ways. And then during her fourth drug journey, her guide started circling her anus with his finger and she confronted him and eventually she stopped going to him. Ashley also tried to report this guy because like Susan, she wanted to stop him from hurting other people. She started with the state licensing board, but he wasn't licensed. From there, Ashley goes on this strange and farcical trip from members of the Underground Ethics Council to Francoise Borzat and more. We've seen her emails, but it was the phone and Zoom responses that she remembers as being comically inconsistent and unhelpful. You know, they told me things like, oh, we've never had a complaint like this. And then on the next phone call, they'd say, oh, well, when we get complaints like this, we usually do. We got no response from the ethics council that she was communicating with. And actually, ever since we and other outlets have reported allegations of abuse in that circle, they've put out a message saying that they're disbanding their underground network. But in the emails with Ashley back then, at one point they ask her what to do. Like, should he stop working with women? Should he get help? She wrote to them that she was worried he was going to manipulate them. She remembers in calls, They wanted to tell me how sorry he was. And, I mean, it was just such bullshit, you know? And it's all about rehabilitating him and making sure he gets educated. Francoise writes to Ashley saying, basically, huh, I don't know the guy, but my husband on her own trained him. You want to talk to him? And the ethics guy emails to say he's asked Aharon to tell the guide to stop working until further notice. But her guide was based in New York. And I replied, And where does this supervisor live? California, right? And they said yes. And I said, as far as I'm concerned, he'll do whatever he wishes. She even talks to someone at MAPS, which at the time was the fiscal sponsor of the group that Francoise co-founded with her daughter. Ashley wrote to MAPS because they're the most visible above-ground group dealing with psychedelic therapy. So she thought maybe someone there could help. He greets me with a tobacco pipe in hand and um, dogs barking in the background. And He declined to comment to us, either to deny or confirm because of privacy. But Ashley says their conversation left her with a feeling that he was ill-equipped to talk to someone who'd experienced what she had. And she told him so. It was so, so weird. He was like asking me that maybe he could call me in the future to ask me some questions about how to be better at working with people who've dealt with trauma. There's some really amazing scholarship around complaint, and one of the ideas is that when you pay attention to complaints and what happens when someone complains in an institutional setting, you learn a lot about the institution that they're complaining in and complaining about. It was very clear to me that they were not going to be useful or helpful in any way. So I, yeah, that's when I found you. <laughs> I I just feel really grateful to you for helping me to see that bigger picture and and get other people to see that bigger picture so we could shake that tree and like find the other things we found and... So thanks. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. I feel like I have... I have had to play this balancing act between 
processing this stuff and then also just trying to like survive and to get by. I spend a lot of time trying not to think about these things, you know, and trying to just kind of move on with my life. Like even listening to the podcast, I've just really have had to like listen from this very detached point. Um, I've also just wanted nothing more than to go back in time and have not done this. Yeah, I hear you. And I've definitely been in that place. Where's the fucking time machine? I had like a moment, I think. Yeah, it was two years after. And I'd just shipped all my stuff back from back east to LA and was figuring out my next move. And I remember when my stuff showed up at my dad's house and I like opened up the container and looked inside and just had this moment of going like, what if I'd just never gone? <laughs> and none of that had happened. Yeah. Just such a huge range of things in my life have changed because of this. Um, my ability to connect with people has changed. Um, my ability to trust people has changed. My career has changed. My marriage has changed. My friendships have changed. Um, yeah, <laughs> it has reached into every part of my life. Um I mean, I expect it to be changed in a different way. Um, you know, I didn't expect to be changed like this. Since all of this has happened, like, what are the things or the thing that's helped you the most to kind of mo move forward, if, if anything? I don't know. Um... Nothing has really helped in the way I wish it would. Um, yeah. I spent two months alone in the woods. Didn't really help. Um, it doesn't really matter what I do. It's just something I have to deal with. Yeah, I hear you. I think the thing I have noticed most pervasively in the last couple of years has just been a constant, I don't want to say numbness because it's not a numbness because it's very painful. Um, just like a deadness. Like uh, I went to... I don't know, like eight national parks and stood in some of the most beautiful places on this, like at least in this part of the world. And it just never really touched me. And those are the kind of things that I used to feel the most. That was always like my saving grace. Like for all the things that I've experienced in my life, I always felt like if I was somewhere beautiful that I felt connected to in some way it was just it would just kind of take away all the pain um I just thought that was like built into who I was like that that was just going to always be something I could rely on you know and just always have and now I just I don't really get that anymore so it's yeah, we're all quite permeable. <laughs> a lot of the people that we've talked to have been through hell. Most of them have made it really clear that they don't blame the drugs. In fact, some of them are continuing to use psychedelics on their own terms. I'm all for decriminalizing it to make it accessible. When we first talked to Mel... 
She told us that one of the big reasons that she decided to participate in the clinical trials for MDMA-assisted therapy was because it was a medicalized setting. In the clinical setting, they're supposed to have all the answers. They have the way to fix me. If I follow their path, they're going to tell me what to do, and then it's going to lead to this. You need these people with the letters after their names to give you something and to guide you through something. Mel is the one who described her experience in the clinical trial as having open-heart surgery, but then everyone just walked away from the table with her chest ripped open. After going through that experience, she couldn't really figure out a way to put that back together. So she started doing psychedelics underground. And at this point, she's kind of done a 180 on the whole idea of medicalized psychedelic therapy. There is healing that happens, but it perpetuates the, the damaging belief that there's something about me that is broken, that someone and something outside of myself has the answers to bringing those pieces back together. My underground guide truly and genuinely does not believe that they are an expert on me in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I remember one time I wanted to kill them. Like, they sat down in front of me, like, with a cup of coffee, like, all serious. You know, it was at the end, and they're like, all right, you want to know what the fuck just happened here? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they look at me, and they're like, I don't know what the fuck just happened here. <laughs> and I was, like, ready to kill them, you know? Like... <laughs> I'm expecting answers. I'm expecting you to give me the answers, but that's the beauty of it. There is no someone outside of myself who knows me better than me. The medicalization of this is going to take something very, very, very powerful and put it into the hands of power. There is nothing more dangerous than placing power into the hands of power. <laughs> When we come back, the complainers group. Hello. Hi. Lovely to meet you. Hi. Yeah, I've heard great things. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From New York Magazine, this is Cover Story. Good place to start. How are you doing? How are you feeling? So short answer is I'm, I'm doing good and that I'm like eating, sleeping, walking. I'm just really drained and kind of on the cusp of weepy. So it's weird being public about everything I've been public about. We actually talk with Megan Buisson pretty regularly. Zoe, come. She's the speed skater. Yeah, good girl. Sit. Who had the terrible experience in the clinical trial. Zoe, get close. And then brought us a pile of data, plus the footage of the horrible things her therapist did to her during those MDMA sessions. Okay, Zoe, stay. My dog's like, what are you doing? There's a lot going on for her right now, but one undeniable bright spot in her life at the moment is her certified PTSD service dog, Zoe. We're just practicing a stay as I'm talking to you. Oh my goodness, she's drooling. Good girl. Zoe, stay. Waking up in the morning to this, like, wagging tail bundle of energy who is ecstatic to see me because we've been asleep for seven or eight hours and... Every single morning, she's just like, human, you're awake. I want to explore this question of like, what, do you have you had people come to you asking your advice of whether they should give psychedelic therapy a go? Um, there's no, first, there's no such thing as safety. Like, let's just be really clear on that. Like, there's no such thing as safety. The only question is, can you feel safe enough to take that risk? And I have zero desire to take psychedelics, any kind of drug. Like I just, I don't want anything in my body that will ever again make me that vulnerable. 
the advice that I always give people is like the only way to be safe in a psychedelic space is if you bring someone with you, someone who is not tied to whoever your guide or shaman is, has no connection to them, someone who is sober and not taking anything and whose sole purpose in that space is to watch your back. These drugs rip you open. And I think people need to be aware of that and to understand that you can't be, there's no way to be prepared for that. And when it's open, you can't put the stuff back in the box. I'm sitting here now and I can't think of a single thing I didn't do or try or a regulatory agency I didn't call. And the answers I got were either, oh, this is so horrible. I'm so sorry this happened to you. And then silence. Or it's not our problem. The process of complaining is hard. And it doesn't often yield the kinds of outcomes that it should. After Megan reported what her therapist did to her, she did get a little bit of help from MAPS. They gave her a modest sum of money for the therapy she was struggling to pay for. But in order to get that sum, Megan had to sign a document that waived her rights to ever sue MAPS. At the time, Megan hadn't seen the recordings of her MDMA sessions, and her memory was kind of fuzzy. MAPS has given us conflicting answers as to whether or not they reviewed them back then. What my therapist did to me was horrific. How MAPS reacted and the trauma that has come from as a direct result of MAPS' response has been far worse. It could sound counterintuitive at first, but it's a well-documented phenomenon in the literature. Sometimes the ways that people and institutions respond to harm compounds it and makes it a whole lot worse. And there's even this concept called institutional betrayal. So there's actually been findings that like in university settings where that's been studied, it made people's PTSD symptoms worse. For example, Leia, the phase three participant who rattled the cages and dropped F-bombs in an attempt to get people to pay attention to what happened to her. She tried to tell her therapists. She tried to tell the principal investigator of her site. She submitted an account of her experience that she was told would go to high-level MAP staffers. She even complained to the IRB, which is the oversight body responsible for making sure MAPS' research is done safely and ethically. And none of it culminated in anything that she'd hoped for. Complaint teaches us about power. When you file a complaint, you get to see what the institution cares about. What does it protect? What does it pursue? What is it willing to reveal and share? And I think looking at these experiences, it comes back to this problem of institutional betrayal. Just like, why is it worth fighting still? Why is it worth speaking out? Why is it worth fighting? Megan sat on her experience for months before starting the very long process of reporting her therapists to various authorities. And then she thought long and hard again before making her name and her face and her story public. I think that putting a face and a name to what is unimaginably horrific makes it harder for people to forget it, makes it harder for people to ignore it. Um... I really understand why people wouldn't. I didn't think it was going to be this hard and this long and this awful. Like a lot of people that we've talked to, Megan wanted to speak out to stop this from happening to somebody else, like her niece or your daughter or you. Or the kids that she takes backpacking and kayaking as a wilderness guide. Why is it worth fighting? Why is it worth speaking out? Why is it worth fighting? I look at these last four years of my life and I, like, I see absolutely nothing more important than what I'm doing right now. And hell, it's actually kind of fun to fight. <laughs> I'm just like, are you kidding me? I've got so much fury over what happened. I'm just like, I'm all like happily unleashed on something. <laughs> 
Can we talk a bit about the complainers group? I love the complainers group. <laughs> Hello. Morning. Well, yeah, it is morning. Sorry. We cannot <laughs> hear you. Can you hear me now? What do you think of the name? I really like it in the sense that complainers has such a pejorative term to it. Oh, she's complaining again. Stop complaining. I like the reclaiming of the word. Just saying, saying like, hey, there's something here. Let's look at. Let's make this better. Yeah. <laughs> For the last six months or so, we've had this group. Which we've nicknamed the complainers group. Hi. Nishé, Dr. Nishé Devenel. This is Dr. Emma Tumulty. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. Hi. Yeah, I've heard great things about you. A bunch of the people that we've talked to along the way for this show have kind of gotten sucked into it. And now we're all talking with each other. Um, so I put together an agenda. I have some different items to kind of talk through. But before jumping like down to business. Everyone has sort of their own area of expertise. And Dr. Emma Tumulty's nerd kingdom is research ethics and misconduct. And she knows a lot about the FDA and how drugs are approved. She didn't really know anything about psychedelic research before we reached out, but we totally pulled her in. Almost purely selfish kind of intellectual reasons, right? Like this is a trickier research ethics problem to me than other research ethics problems. How do we keep people safe in this very, very complex kind of research ethics setting? That's really why I've ended up down this rabbit hole. <laughs> Emma told us that once she started getting into the research side of psychedelic therapy and clinical trials, she really couldn't stop thinking about how little the regulators knew or were equipped to deal with this new psychotherapy. And I think, honestly, a lot of regulators and people reviewing this kind of work are probably not well prepared for because I didn't feel well prepared for it once I had had a conversation with you about it and I've, I've sat on ethics committees I've reviewed very complex kinds of projects. One of the things we did sort of pretty early on actually was to draft this complaint to the FDA this 30-page rundown of the ethics and research issues and of course, we included some of what happened in Megan's clinical trial. We've got really legitimate concerns here. We have articulated them clearly. And like, there is video footage, like there is actual footage of real-time harms happening. And, and here it is, FDA, like here is the video of this happening in real time that a drug company sat on. Basically, it was a, a summary of all of the things we'd learned about the MAPS clinical trials. And it pretty much said why we were concerned about them and that we hoped that the FDA would actually take a look at this litany of problems. We were pretty confident that if they looked beneath the surface, they would find a leviathan. So we sent off the complaint and for months didn't hear anything back. But we did get a reply two days after episode seven came out. It was a bit unsatisfying. They've essentially said, we understand you have concerns. We've identified similar concerns. We had a workshop about it, a workshop that includes MAPS as a speaker speaking on the issues that we think they don't do well. Uh, and if we find any safety problems, we'll uh, do something about that, but we can't let you know that we have or what those things look like. As an expert, like, I'm scratching my head about what you do next. I'm pretty stumped at the moment, uh, disappointingly. You can keep trying to address, like, the individual problems. Um, you know, where we can find evidence that undermines a paper, you can try and have a paper retracted. Where you find that a practitioner has done something egregious, you can have something about that single practitioner. And, you know, those things build up. But, again, it doesn't really address the programmatic problem of the thinking that doesn't think about safety properly, that is really just doing what, the bare minimum it can think of to pass a hurdle so that it can go to market. Which is, you know, a lot of pharmaceutical companies could be yep. thought of as doing that. 
How were they recruiting people? Okay, uh, do we want to do the same time? So the complainers group has had some real victories. So one of the things I was thinking about is rather than... A little while back, we read an article about touch and consent in psychedelic therapy that set off a lot of alarm bells, and we decided to do something about it. Like unacceptable it is and meager. So we wrote this article in response about, like, the patterns of abuse in psychedelic therapy, how different narratives of touch have been normalized, how a lot of those narratives aren't actually evidence-based, but are simply things that, like, psychedelic practitioners said back in the 50s. And we just figured, hey, like, if that's getting published, we should probably try to get our two cents on the record. So we did. The piece got published on Bill of Health, which is a Harvard bioethics publication. How does it feel that that's out? So cool. Um, Both in terms of fighting back against the inappropriate messaging that I'd received about touch. And just taking taking a stand and taking a stand in a way that was recognized academically as accurate and legitimate and being deserving of being in that space. Okay. Yeah, that works. Okay. So, um, um, and on that agenda, do you want to talk about the Health Canada complaint as well? That was really cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I really liked, I really, most yeah. of all, I appreciated how paper, cohesive and collective it was. Like there was not a single sentence in that paper no, that just, yeah, just in the meantime, it's just dumping came from any one person. Have? What do we all have collectively that we can put forward into these folders and start fleshing out what we're I need on? community at a level yeah. that I don't think I appreciated in a life that has just dealt with loneliness by isolating myself the difference between when it was just me for a bunch of years like creating this binder of emails and sending out emails and phoning and just like the 74 lawyers I called and just like it's so different when I wake up and there's 52 messages from the complainer group and they're heartbreaking and funny and hilarious and insightful and like these like do 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 I'm just going for the walk and then like boom she insight bomb and like it's just it's so incredible i feel you in a big way like finding other people who are willing to take a stand and fight and like do this work together it's what a feeling when i was 18 years old i was a college freshman i was experimenting with lsd and mescaline And these experiences brought me in touch with my emotions, and they helped me have a spiritual connection. For weeks and months now, we've been telling you to beware of the narrative that people are pushing to promote psychedelics. Whether we're talking about Rick Doblin from MAPS or Peter Hunt from the Australian organization, MMA. Mental illness is the leading cause of non-fatal disease in this country. What more do we need to realize that this is an epidemic? This narrative's about how everyone is suffering right now and how psychedelics can solve all of their suffering. I think one of the things these drugs do is make it possible to break out of all the different uh, forms of addiction. By giving people psychedelic therapy, we're going to eradicate trauma. I think by 2050, we hear so much in terms of uh, climate change about, uh, you know, net zero carbon. (laughs) So our goal is net zero trauma. Psychedelics will heal everyone and everything. These experiences had the potential to help be an antidote to tribalism, to fundamentalism, to genocide and environmental destruction. A lot of folks don't take these organizations or these wild claims seriously. But MAPS is for real. They just hired a new COO off Moderna, and they got a $70 million investment. And MAPS actually told us they're planning to do MDMA studies on children as young as seven years old who have PTSD. So our goal with our watchdog group, Symposia, is to investigate what's going on behind the glitz of the psychedelic industry. Hello. Hey. Hiya. And that's why we want you to meet a member of our team who actually works with the populations that so many people in this space claim to care about. Our goal today is going to be to get you to admit that you're a flat earther. 
Yada Leaks, Estrada, and Dave met because they were both throwing some similar critiques around at some panelists at a conference. Mental health care is not something that is accessible to communities of color. It's not accessible to low-income communities. It's not accessible to people that are very vulnerable. If we don't have access to basic therapy, how are we supposed to expect that we're going to have access to psilocybin Like everyone on the Symposia team... Yadelix has her own story of getting into psychedelics. In college, I, it took me a long time to make friends. She was a teenager from Miami and feeling really out of place at Johns Hopkins University. I was really isolated. and She heard about these studies that Johns Hopkins was doing around psilocybin for depression. I remember having hope, like this is something that's been happening that's been actually helping people get out of those holes that they're in. And at that time, I just, I remember like knowing like I'm probably depressed and like thinking that, oh, maybe this is a thing that could help me. She had her first mushroom trip at a friend's house. I remember laying in bed, listening to uh, an artist that I really liked at the time called Tori Moi and like feeling really happy, but also crying. And then I would like touch my face and be like, why am I crying? I'm not sad right now. I'm, I'm happy, but I'm, you know, I'm still feeling tears. That experience just opened me up to being like, first of all, I don't cry. So why, you know, what was that? Um, and second of all, like, why was I crying when I was feeling happy? Eventually, she became a psychonaut with her best friend. Because we found suppliers and we're like, we're going to do it all. <laughs> Awesome. (laughs) I love, I love getting a window into this version of you. Nowadays, when Yara Leaks is talking about drugs, it's not like, how do we solve all the trauma and shift human consciousness? For her day job, she works on the streets doing harm reduction in New York. Uh, working with people that have been justice impacted or unhoused or immigrants or low income. For some people, the idea of helping people get a safe supply of drugs is crazy. But that's, I think, the bare minimum of something that we do so that they don't end up in prison or dead from using them. So we asked Yara Leaks the question we've been asking everyone. Like, do you think people who are hurting should do psychedelic therapy? And do you think they can do it safely? What do you think these therapies might offer to some of the populations you work with? Like, what what potentials do you see? In an ideal world, if there was frontline workers that were used to working with that population that were trained to give psychedelics to them, I think that would work. Because they already have those relationships with them. But those are not the people that are leading these, these efforts, these studies, these programs. When you say that that would work, can you just say a bit more like work to do what? What do you think it could do for people? I think it could lead them to have a pleasant psychedelic experience. I think everyone deserves to have access to an experience like that because it's beautiful. It's like traveling. Like traveling is awesome. You get to meet new people and have different experiences and see different places. And everyone should be able to have that in the same way that these experiences should be available I think that there could be healing that can help people realize that they they have the ability to get out of whatever situations they're in, but without fixing and addressing the outward, you know, circumstances that people are facing that put them in those situations in the first place, what are we doing? I heard this really great analogy that it was like you have a river and it's a toxic river, lots of trash and toxins in it. If you take the fish and you treat it, now you have a treated fish, it's it's like healthy or whatever, but you put it back in the river, you know, like what's going to happen? Dave, I just wanted to loop back. Oh, you can hear Zoe. <laughs> Sorry. We're in the car for a run. Um, I just wanted to loop back to the interview last night because I was thinking about it. And 
When people ask me about psychedelics, what comes up for me, and I've said it all the way through, is I do believe that um, we have a right to be an active voice in our own treatment and our care. But for that to happen, we need to have access to the information to make an evidence-based ethical decision. There are so many things that can go wrong in a psychedelic session, and the people who are positing themselves as experts, for the most part, are not trained to deal with that. So it's a fallacy to equate that to medical care. If you're making a choice to walk into that arena, go in with that curiosity and that skepticism and, and recognizing your own biases and what brought you there in the first place and how does that put you at risk and how does that make you vulnerable. And bring someone with you who you can talk to and who you can trust and who can really engage in skeptical conversations, um, supporting you but also really caring about you. So that's about it from me and my dog is... <laughs> starting to whine looking at me longingly so I do need to go take a far run but thanks for listening Cover Story is a production of New York Magazine Power Trip is co-created, produced, and reported by David Nichols and me, Lily K. Ross. If you have information for us, we have a tip line. You can email tips at symposia.com. And that's P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A. Our senior producers are Marianne McCune and Whitney Jones. Also produced by Taka Zen, Liza Yeager, Noor Buzidi, and Io Tillett-Wright. Our executive producer and editor is Hannah Rosen, with additional editing help by Nicole Hill. Sound design and scoring by Brandon McFarland. Additional sound design by Sharif Youssef, who also mixed the show. Cover Story's theme music is by Santa Gold. Additional music is by Lynx Demuth and John Ellis. Fact-checking by the wonderful Bertina Chang and Ted Hart. Crystal Finn is the voice of Susan, and Micah Lonstra-Korn is the voice of Ashley. Special thanks to Legal Minds' Alyssa Cohen, Jillian Robbins, and Samantha Mason, and also to Gabby Grossman. Big thanks to Sarah Ahmed for her writings on Complaint. Power Trip is also produced with Symposia, a nonprofit watchdog group. The team is Brian Normand, Dr. Nishe Devineau, Dr. Brian Pace, and Russell Hosfeld. For a deeper dive into some of these issues, visit symposia.com slash power trip. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux. So how can you keep up? Well, the current report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. So if it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts.